0: Again, where we are this morning, we'll be reading just one verse today. Verse 14, as we work our way through uh, the Ten Commandments, we come to the Seventh Commandment, which reads in Exodus 20, verse 14, You shall not commit adultery. Now listen, I'm not naive enough to think that even in a room this size, that there are all sorts of people with all sorts of pasts with all sorts of sexual past and all sorts of sexual struggles, even in the present. And so at the very outset of this message, I just want to say that as we engage this message, we want to do so in a context of grace, in a context of an emphasis on God's love, on God's mercy, on God's compassion, on God's kindness, and His willingness to save sinners. Because there are folks maybe in the room who've, who have experienced sexual abuse. There may be those who have perpetrated sexual abuse. Maybe those in the room who've, who've on the backside maybe have a divorce because of sexual sin in their in their marriage. And there are those who have maybe been the ones who have committed sexual sin in the context of marriage. There's all sorts of people with all sorts of past and all sorts of struggles in the present. And so I want you to know that as we work through this, this doesn't come from a place of anger, but it comes from a place of love. I believe that God gives us this command as well out of a demonstration of his loving heart towards us, both for his glory and for our good. And so if we take a look at this command that prohibits adultery. I want us to see the point of the command, the depth of the command, the price of ignoring this command and the person who kept it. So first of all, what's the point of the command? Listen, adultery, what is adultery? Adultery is a violation of God's Good design. That's what adultery is. It's a violation of God's design for marriage and a violation of God's design for sex. Let's take a look at both of those things. First of all, adultery is a violation of God's design for marriage. Marriage, by God's design, is intended to be a covenant relationship. Okay? It's not intended to be a social contract, but a sacred covenant that is to be entered into by one man and one woman. What that means is this is that marriage was never intended to be a disposable commodity. Okay? Kind of like a toilet paper roll. Okay? You get down to the end of the toilet paper and you take off the cardboard roll, and you throw it in the trash, and disposable, disposable commodity, a paper plate. Okay, but what marriage is is more like a fine china that sits in your hutch, not the Dixie brand plates that sit on the pantry in your shelf. Because marriage is not a disposable commodity. But it's not based on contracts and term limits. But it was always intended to be a lasting love that never gives up. But it always hopes for the better. That it never runs out, it never runs around, never fails, never lets us down. was it wasn't meant to be treated by like, a used car. Whenever we get the mileage out of it that we need, we trade it in and we trade up. Or like clothing that wears out over the course of time. When the colors begin to fade, we just can it And we go out and buy something new with vibrant colors black pots again. That's not what marriage is intended to be. See in Genesis 2.24, we read these words, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now a couple of things we see here in that text in Genesis 2.24 is this. First, marriage is not a human invention, but it's a divine institution. It's not something that men and women just thought of on their own. They thought, man, this would be really good for society. It would be really good for stability. So we should have marriage. But God ordains it in the foundation of creation for the well-being of mankind. Because he created men and women in his image and says they should come together in a one flesh union that would result, from, at, at, oftentimes, in bringing forth the children. It would be the foundation and fabric of societies. And in fact, what we're told, this word, hold fast, in our Bible, in our English translations, or cleave in the older English translation, right? You shall cleave to your husband or cleave to your wife. It literally means this, to join or glue together to join together with glue that bonds and sticks. I, I, I kind of tinker with a little bit of woodworking in my spare time. And one of the things that I often do whenever I build a piece of furniture, a cabinet, a door, anything like that, when I join things together, I use screw and glues. Screw and glues? Screws and glue, that's what I meant to say, right? (laughs) Screws and glue, right? Because the screws can work themselves out over the course of time, but the glue bonds together. In fact, the glue bonds in such a way, wood glue bonds in such a way, that it bonds the fibers of one piece of wood to the fibers of another piece of wood. So it creates more of a permanent bond between those two things. And that's the kind of bond the Bible is describing here. When it says, hold fast or cleave, be glued together. The level of your souls. And what this means is this, listen, God's design for marriage is a covenant relationship bound together in one flesh, where you see and you stay. You heard me, some of you have heard me talk about this before? About seeing and staying. Right, when you're bound together, right, the level of body and soul, you see and stay. You see all the things about another person, all the blemishes in their body, all the stains on their soul, and you stay faithful in the context of that relationship. Right? Because only whenever there is seed and stayed in the context of relationship, because you've been bound together in this one flesh union, can there be deep levels of vulnerability. Because only where there is, there can only be deep levels of vulnerability where there are deep levels of security. Listen, without security, there can be no vulnerability. can I open yourself up to another person and then trust your entire life to them without there being some security that they're not going to walk out, they're not going to turn aside, they're not going to leave you behind. And in our consumer age, listen, physical intimacy oftentimes is used as an audition for commitment, not as the consummation and expression of that commitment. Like, do I want to engage and commit with this person? I don't know. Let's be intimate with each other versus I'm going to bind myself through, by pledge and covenant with them, and then enjoy the expression of that through intimacy physically, and spiritually, and relationally, where I trust my entire life to them. Listen, we are captivated. Even in a consumer age, we are captivated by this kind of commitment, by this kind of covenant that God designed. Okay? We are captivated by it in the scenes of movies and the pages of literature. Which I, some of you have heard use this illustration before, but in the, in the Pixar movie Up. I remember that movie where, where, where this, you got Carl and Ellie, you got this, this, this couple who gets married, right? And Carl works as a b- balloon animal specialist uh, at the zoo, and Ellie also works at the zoo as well. And they meet, and they marry, uh, and, uh, and, and, and they go through lots of ups and downs, peaks and valleys over the course of their marriage. In fact, uh, over the course of time, uh, as their marriage suffers a miscarriage and they're eventually told they can't have children, the two, uh, as a result of that, they decide they're going to realize their dream of going to this exotic, tropical destination called Paradise Falls. Uh, they're going to go visit this place. And so they begin this, this, this savings jar in the mantle of their fireplace. Right? And every time they have some spirit change, they put it into the jar. Right? So the change goes in there. bills go in there. Coins go in there. And over the course of time, right, emergencies happen, don't they? Can I get a witness? Things happen, right, that make you dip into the jar on the mantle, right? So t- flat tires, car repairs, woo, right? There's all kinds of things that begin to transpire in the relationship. They have to fix parts of the house, there's plumbing springs a leak, okay? So all these things are going on in our life, so it's constantly shattering and then restarting the jar. Over and over and over again until finally the opening sequence of the movie comes towards the end of those first two and a half minutes they've been saving for the trip and now the elderly Carl is finally, they finally put enough money away to go see Paradise Falls and and what you find there at the end of that opening sequence is that Ellie has contracted a terminal disease and she dies before they can ever take the trip. And listen, I want you to know that after that opening sequence, as a grown man, Okay, I was like choking back tears. And a part of the reason is because what you're witnessing in that opening sequence to an animated children's movie (laughs) is God's intention and design for marriage. For the covenant relationship in which you see and you stay through all the ups and downs, all the highs and lows. Of life. There is a faithfulness and a fidelity and a love and a and and, and a seeing and staying that is demonstrated there before our eyes. It's the most beautiful thing in all of creation. And here's why. Because we're told elsewhere in the Bible that marriage is intended to be a reflection of the relationship between God and his people, Christ and His church. In Ephesians chapter 5. Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 when he writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and will fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then in verse 32 he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, what Paul says is this, The pinnacle of God's love for us as His people was demonstrated through His Son, Jesus Christ, seeing and staying with us. God saw and stayed with us, and that's demonstrated through Jesus, who despite of our unfaithfulness, was faithful to us to the very end, even at the cost of His own life. And He established a covenant with us with which He would see and stay. And so when you see a husband and a wife seeing and staying in covenant relationship over time, because they've been bound together like glue. This is the most beautiful thing in all creation because it's a reflection. Of that relationship, and adultery. Adultery is a violation of God's design for marriage, because rather than seeing and staying. The sin of adultery often leads to separation and severing of that relationship. But not only is adultery a violation of God's design for marriage, but a violation of God's design for sex. Just in sex. Is intended to be a, a part of the glue that binds husband and wife together. It's intended to initiate and celebrate this one flesh covenant union between one man and one woman for one lifetime. That's how God designed sex to work. So in fact, when, when the seventh commandment that, that God gives in Exodus twenty fourteen, it ultimately it prohibits adultery, but it requires purity, sexual purity. Which, which, listen, is in stark contrast to the culture in the ancient world at that time. Because the culture in the ancient world at that time was filled with promiscuity and perversion. Right? So you have multiple partners sexually. You could go to the, the, the temples where the temple prostitutes were, and you could engage in sexual relations with the temple prostitutes and worship with these false gods. So there was a very promiscuous and perverse culture into which God says, you shall be faithful. You shall have fidelity and integrity in your sexual lives. And it was a complete 180 from the culture in which God's people would have been immersed living amongst the nations that surrounded them. So if you looked at the nations that were around them, right, it it was filled with all kinds of sexual sin. And when God says you shall not commit adultery, the rest of the Old Testament shows adultery or sexual sin as a breach of the marital contract or the marital covenant before God. It dishonors God by placing our desires above God's design and chasing after our desires rather than submitting to God's design. It's the highest sort of theft. You're stealing the flesh or the body of someone else for your own benefit, for your own pleasure. It ruins your reputation. It impairs your mind. This is how the Old Testament speaks of sexual sin. Whenever you think about sex, sex is indeed the sign of marital covenant, becoming one with another person. Listen, anytime God gives a, makes a covenant with His people in the Old Testament or in the New, He gives a sign of that covenant, doesn't He? With Noah, He gives a sign of what? rainbow. With Abraham, He gives a sign of circumcision. Abraham might be thinking, oh, wish I could have got the sign of the rainbow. <laughs> In the New Testament, you get the sign of Jesus inaugurating the covenant. He says what? This is my body broken for you. When you do this, remember me. This is my blood that is shed for you. It's the sign of the new covenant. When you drink it, remember me. So you have this physical outward representation of this inward spiritual reality, the rainbow of God promising never to judge the world through a flood again, circumcision, God setting his people apart for himself. And then then Jesus saying, listen, this is the sign of the covenant that I was, my body was shredded to pieces for you, and my blood was shed for you. Here's a physical representation of the spiritual reality. And so it stands to reason that whenever God speaks of the relationship between husbands and wives, in the same way that He does of Christ and the church, that they are covenantal relationships. And this covenant between husbands and wives comes with a sign, and that sign is sexual intimacy. It is a physical representation of an inner spiritual reality of two becoming one flesh. One physically, one legally, one financially, one emotionally. And what adultery does, what adultery does, listen, adultery is a violation of God's design for sex. Because in the act of adultery, you do with your body what you're unwilling or unable to do with the rest of your life. Become one with that person. It's a violation of God's design for sex. So you should never, like this prohibition means you should never do with your body what you're unwilling to do with the rest of your life. But I'm entrusting all of your life, the rest of your life to this other person. You should never enjoy the pleasures of sex without the purpose of sex. To be bound together as one flesh. This means sex is not meant for hookups or live in partners or even serial monogamists, right? Who just go from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship over the, where they spend a year with one person, six years with another person, three years with another person, six months with another person. Right? It's not meant for that. It's meant for a whole life and trustment for all of your life, for the rest of your life. Part of the glue that binds us together, this is why people, listen, in abusive relationships who are engaged sexually in those relationships feel like there's no way to escape. Because they bound themselves together with another person with a glue that was never meant to be separated. Never meant to be pulled apart. It's, listen, it's like taking your thumb and putting some super glue on it and then sticking it to a two-by-four. You can pull those two things apart, but it's going to be painful. Extremely painful. And so rather than experiencing the pain, you just walk around the rest of your life with your thumb glued to life. That's what abusive relationships that are sexually engaged are like. You know it's destroying you. You know it's not healthy for you. But you just walk around with yourself glued to another person for the rest of your life. Because the thought of pulling yourself apart from that is horrendous. It's a violation of God's design. Adultery is a violation of God's design for sex. Because you're unwilling or unable to give the rest of your life to others. So why does God set it out of It's the point of the command. It's a violation of His design. But I want you to consider something. The Bible doesn't stop there when speaking of adultery. Because adultery is deeper than just your outward actions. Right? But in the same way that we saw last week, that murder, everything that you need to commit murder is in the seed of unrighteous anger. So also, everything that you need to commit adultery is located in the seed of lust. In fact, Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. So he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He goes back to the seventh commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. See, what Jesus says in this is that lust is the seed of adultery. It's the scene of adultery. And listen, I want you to know that we live in a hyper-sexualized culture, right? In which lust, in which lust has become normalized. It's become normalized. It's become normalized in all forms of entertainment. It's become normalized in, across the board in fashion. It's become normalized across the board in both young and old, in pop culture. It's become normalized. Right? The, the, way, the way that, that, that sex is, is presented within our culture. It's become normalized. When you think about lust. Lust, the word that Jesus uses there for lust, is actually a Greek word. It's a compound Greek word. Right? The root word is thumeo and the prefix is epi. You know what that means? The mayo means desire, the word epi means over. And so you put those two things together and you get over desire, or inordinate desire, or desire that's running out of control.
1: (sighs) And that word shows up
0: all across the New Testament. When We see our English word lust, it's that word over desire, inordinate desire, desires that I can't control, desires that are raging, desires that are burning within my heart, within my soul. It might be a desire for power by right, the exercising of influence over people. It might be a desire for money, the accumulation of wealth. It might be a desire for food, and gluttony and obesity the result of that. But it's over-desire, oftentimes, for things that we're intended to enjoy. But, but those good things become ultimate things, and they become destructive things in our lives. So also with sex. See, the desire for sex is a good thing that God has placed within us. To be enjoyed in the right context, at the right time. In the context of marriage, to one man and one woman for one lifetime. But in the same way, in the same way that that sin hijacks our desires in other areas of life. Like when it comes to food. Anybody love a good meal? You can rejoice in a good meal, give thanks to God for a good meal, but listen, there's a reason that gluttony in the Middle Ages was listed as one of the seven deadly sins. Right? Because it's an inordinate desire that leads to all kinds of other health problems through obesity and diabetes and high blood pressure and heart disease. All those things come along with gluttony. Right? It begins to destroy your body, and listen, I want you to know that. Over desire for sex begins to destroy not only your body but also your soul. It has all kinds of lasting implications, and there is no better place to see this, church and listen, than within the adult, quote-unquote, adult entertainment industry. I want you to know that pornography causes massive damage. Massive damage. See. Let me see if I can break it down for this way. Viewing pornography is like drinking antifreeze. Right? It smells, it tastes kind of sweet. It's kind of blue. It's like blue Kool-Aid, right? blue Gatorade, blue raspberry, and that stuff looks really tasty. I'm really thirsty, so I'm just going to down this blue stuff. I'm not really sure what it is, but it tastes sweet going down. And so you drink antifreeze day after day. After, what you, It's not going to take very long before something begins to happen internally in your body, right? Your organs begin to shut down because your body can't handle those levels of toxicity. Because antifreeze was never meant to satisfy you, never meant to fuel you. No matter how sweet it tastes, no matter how pretty it looks, it was never meant to, to hydrate you. So your body, we to shut down. But viewing pornography is like drinking antifreeze, and then wondering why all these things are going on in your body. That you, like, you feel terrible. Things are shutting down. Maybe it's the poison that I've been putting into my body. That's what pornography does to the soul. It poisons the soul. Listen. Back in 1986. 1986. Before the internet, before laptops, before smartphones, before instant access to images and videos of all sorts were at our fingertips. In 1986, the then Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. C. Everett Koop, said this about pornography. He said it was a crushing public health problem. A clear and present danger blatantly anti-human, and we must oppose it as we oppose all violence and all prejudice. In 1986, and if in 1986 it was a clear and present danger, a crushing public health problem, what is it in 2019? Listen, I want you to know pornography has mass, causes massive damage. It causes personal destruction in your life. This is one researcher, Mary Ann Layton, the director of sexual trauma and psychopathology at the University of Pennsylvania. She's a very smart lady. <laughs> she said this, she said, pornography overall changes the body. It reveals a number of negative attitudes and behaviors that are connected with its use. It functions as a teacher, as a permission giver, and as a trigger of negative behaviors and attitudes. The damage is seen in men, women, and children to both married and single adults. It involves pathological behaviors, illegal behaviors, and some behaviors that are illegal and pathological. In other words, she's saying this. That pornography involves both illegal and pathological behaviors that begin to teach and condition people to accept those as the norm, and it conditions us. But not only does it condition us psychologically, but it also conditions us physiologically. Listen, one other research study came to these conclusions: that pornography, by offering an endless harem of sexual objects, it hyperactivates the appetite system so that its viewers develop new maps in their brains. So based on the photos and videos they see, and because our brain is a using or a losing organ, when we develop a map area, we long to keep it activated. Just as our muscles become impatient for exercise and we've been sitting all day, so too our senses hunger to be stimulated. People at their computers, addicted to or looking at pornography, are uncannily like rats in cages of a laboratory. They're pressing the bar to get a shot of dopamine or whatever is in the bottle. And though they don't know it, they have been seduced into these training sessions that meet all the conditions required for the change of the brain map. What they're saying is this, is that your brain, the way that it works, it has roadways, it has pathways. And those pathways are developed over the course of time and history, as you have experience, after experience, after experience, after experience, after experience. And if you have enough experiences, expose yourself to enough of these influences, what happens is, in the brain sensation centers, the continual viewing of pornography, what it does is it repaves the roads in your brain. And because your brain wants to drive, right, to use it or lose an organ, it wants to drive, it's going to drive down the roads that have been paved for it based upon the experiences it's had. And it takes years to repave those roads in your brain. Which is why those who so struggle with addiction to pornography, Oftentimes, it's not a a cataclysmic freedom that they experience, but a progressive one over the course of time as those pathways, those roadways in their brain are repaid. There are new stop signs, new cross streets that get laid in the brain for us to drive down. It changes us psychologically. It changes us physiologically. But not only does it cause personal damage, it also causes collateral damage. Damage to your spouse and to your children. So I want to read you a letter, an open letter, from my daughter to her poor addicted father. Listen to what she says. She says, I want to let you know, first of all, that I love you and forgive you for what this has done to my life. I also want you to know exactly what your porn use has done to me. You may think that this affects only you or even you and mom's relationships, but it has had a profound impact on me. And all of my siblings as well. She says, I found your porn on the computer somewhere around the age of 12 or so, just when I was starting to become a young woman. First of all, it seemed very hypocritical to me that you were trying to teach me the value of what to let into my mind in terms of movies, yet here you were entertaining your mind with this junk on a regular basis. Your talks to me about being careful of what I watched meant virtually nothing. Because of pornography, I was aware that mom was not the only woman you were looking at. I became acutely aware of your wandering eye when we were out and about. This taught me that all men have a wandering eye and can't be trusted. I learned to distrust and even dislike men for the way they perceive women in this way. As far as modesty goes, you try to talk with me about how my dress affects those around me and how I should value myself what I am on the inside. Yet your actions told me I would never I would would only ever truly be beautiful and accepted if I looked like the women on magazine covers or in the videos. Your talks with me meant nothing and in fact just made me angry. As I grew older, I only had this message reinforced by the culture we live in. That beauty is something that can only be achieved if you look like thin, quote unquote. I also learned to trust you less and less as what you told me didn't line up with what you did. I wondered more and more if I would ever find a man who would accept me and love me for me and not just a pretty face. When I had friends over, I wondered how you perceived them. Did you see them as my friends or did you see them as a pretty face in one of your fantasies? No girl should ever have to wonder that about the man who is supposed to be protecting her and other women in her life. I did meet a man. One of the first things I asked him was about his struggle with pornography. And I'm thankful to God that it is something that hasn't had a grip on his life. We still have struggles because of the deep-rooted distrust in my heart for men. Yes, your pornography watching has affected my relationship with my husband years later. If I could tell you one thing, it would be this. Pornography didn't just affect your life. It affected everyone around you in ways I don't think you can ever realize. It still affects me to this day. And I realize the hold that it has on our society. I dread the day when I have to have this talk with my sweet little boy about pornography and its far-reaching, greedy hands. When I tell him about how pornography, like most sins, affects far more than just us. Like I said, I've forgiven you. I'm so thankful for the work God has done in my life in this area. It's an area that I still struggle with from time to time. But I'm thankful for God's grace and also my husband's. I do pray that you are past this and that the many men who struggle with this will have their eyes opened. Love your daughter. So there's collateral damage associated with pornography. You can never count the cost of that. Never. And we can talk on and on about the other damage that it creates, but finally I want you to consider that it has it causes eternal destruction. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. He says, it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. See, if it wasn't enough, then it caused personal damage. Rewired your brain. Then it caused collateral damage in your family, in your relationship with your spouse, in your relationship with your children. But it also causes eternal destruction. See, if you can make peace with porn in your life, then you're not at peace with God. If you can make peace with pornography being a part of your everyday reality, then you are not at peace with God. And here's the reason, because destinations, uh, directions have destinations. Right? Some of you have heard me say this before, but if I got in the car today, right? tonight's the sunset, and I drove all night long and drove west, the compass on my rearview mirror was pointing west, in the morning I would not end up in Atlanta. Right? I would end up in L.A., Because directions have destinations. And if over the course of your life you continue to drive west, you're not going to end up on the East Coast. And if over the course of your life you continue to make peace with lust, and with pornography, and with adultery, and with sexual infidelity, and unfaithfulness, and sexual sin in your life, then that direction that you continue to give yourself to and drive in We'll have a destination, Jesus says. And it will not be the one, perhaps, you were expecting to arrive at. And what I'm not talking about is that there will not be struggle in your life. And you know what struggle implies? Struggle implies resistance. It implies resistance. And there is no resistance then eventually that destination, Jesus said, will be hell. So listen, what do we do with all of this? As we close, I'm going to give you a couple of things. The Old Testament says, you should not commit adultery. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. I tell you, that lust is the root, the seed of that deed of adultery. And if you want to adultery-proof your life, then you've got to go after the root. You've got to cut it out. So how do we go about doing that? See, Paul says it this way, in Romans 8, 13, he says, First, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put the death of deeds to the body, you will live. We have to to put our lust to death. John Owen, who was a Puritan pastor, famously said it this way. He said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. There's only two options. Either you put sin to death, or sin will eventually destroy you. In the way, the, so how do we kill it? First of all, listen, I want you to understand something, that if you are going to kill sin, before you can practice what the old theologians call mortification of sin, you have to experience regeneration. Before you can put sin to death, you have to be born again. See, so the first step is to realize you cannot do it on your own. That you really are, as Jesus says earlier in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, poor in spirit. You are not capable of accomplishing this by yourself. And that there really is a mourning over your sinful condition. You cry out to God from the depths of your despair and you put your trust in Jesus and be born again. Right? Because without regeneration you have no of mortification. Without the Holy Spirit's activity and presence in your life, left to your own devices, you will fail over and over and over and over again. So the first step is to experience regeneration. Second of all, you've been born again, listen, you've got to learn to believe that God is good, so you don't have to look elsewhere to be satisfied. See, a part of the fight against lust is that what lust tempts us to believe is that if we could achieve this over-desire in our heart for power, or for money, or for food, or for sex, that eventually will fill the void in our life, we will be satisfied so what you must learn to do is fight the fight of faith and confront the lie that lust is better than God. That you receiving what you're lusting after is better than what God has provided. See, one of the things this means is that our sexual fulfillment, church, is not the highest goal and greatest good of your life, but God is. And listen, that is so counterintuitive in the culture in which we live. Because the culture in which we live says, if you are not satisfied sexually, then you are not fully human. That is the lie that the culture wants you to believe. That if you cannot express yourself sexually, if you cannot fulfill all of your desires sexually, then you're not being true to yourself. You're not fully human. And what our culture has done is it's taken sexual desires and it's made them the greatest goal and highest good of life. And the Bible over and over again comes to say no, they are a good gift from God, but they're not the greatest good, God himself is. And so you have to go to war against that lie and confront the lie that lust is better than God, if you have any hope of severing the root of the seed of adultery in your life. Third, third, walk in step with the Holy Spirit. Paul says it this way in Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So walking by the Spirit is living your life in response to His leadership and responding to His convictions. Because the Holy Spirit will never lead you into sin. The Holy Spirit will never place a rubber stamp over lust in your life. But the Holy Spirit will always Always, be bring any conviction. The Holy Spirit will always be prompting. The Holy Spirit will always be leading you toward purity. The Holy Spirit will always be leading you toward the, putting to death those desires of the body, those desires of the flesh. So you walk in step. and step with them. So what that means is this: is that whenever the Holy Spirit convicts, whenever He pricks, whenever He prompts your heart, you don't ignore that initial prompt or prick and say, uh, "If I, I'm gonna take one more step." And then his voice gets a little bit louder. And you say, well, I'm going to drown that out. He take one more step and his voice gets a little bit louder. You know what happens over the course of time as you begin to silence the voice of the Holy Spirit, his conviction in your life? Is that his voice grows softer and softer and softer as you exert your will over His. And so some of us may wonder why we find ourselves in a position where we're no longer hearing the conviction of the Holy Spirit whenever we walk in a way that gratifies the desire of the flesh, it could be because you've silenced it for so long. Fourth, got to scuttle those things that inflame your lusts. You've got to scuttle those things that inflame your lusts. 1519, one of the Spanish explorers named Cortes, he landed on the shores of Mexico to find what was the outpost of a powerful and warlike empire. Some of you are familiar with this from your history books, world history. Right? When he lands on the Mexican shore, he finds the Aztec empire. And they're not very, uh, they don't take very well to these European explorers. And so Cortez does something, something very radical in order to keep his Spanish men trying to go back to Spain. Right? They commit mutiny, take the ships and turn around and sail the other direction. What does he do? He doesn't burn the ships. What does he do? He scuttles them. He takes the cannons and points them at the hull and he fires shots through the holes of the ships so that the men couldn't take the ships and go back to where they'd come from. They couldn't travel up the seas back across to Europe. <laughs> The option was removed from them, and Jesus says, listen in verses 29 and 30, that if your right hand or your right eye causes you to sin, you pluck it out or you cut it off. Now what does that mean? Some of you are like, do I have to go home and take a spoon and pluck out my right eye? I have to go home and take a circular saw and just go ahead and rip off a table saw and rip off my right hand. It's not exactly what Jesus is talking about but the Listen in the right in the, in the ancient world the right eye the right hands were 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 seen of higher value of greater importance than the left eye and left hand are you left handed people I'm sorry it's just the way the culture was but they've seen of, as of greater importance and so what Jesus is saying is this listen. Even you know if there's something of great value and great importance in your life that leads you down a path of lust, that leads you down a path of entertaining thoughts or images in your life that are leading you toward destruction, you have to scuttle it. You have to sink it. You have to cut it off. You have to remove it. This what as that might mean that we have to scuttle our social media accounts? Because those might be the doorway into which we entertain all other kinds of images and all other kinds of actions. For some of us, we need to scuttle our secrecy. Because our secrecy is the path that keeps us going back to the well of trying to drink from a broken system that can never fill us. Because nobody else knows. So you got to be born again, regeneration before mortification. You have to walk in step with the Spirit. You have to believe that God is better. He's good. You don't need to be satisfied anywhere else. And then you begin to scuttle those things that you've historically made pathways back down that road of sin and lust and gratifying the desires of the flesh. Finally. And then I'll be done. Listen, you've got to behold the faithfulness and the grace of God. <sighs> See, I want you to know something that the way that you go to war against lust and the way that you try to adultery-proof your marriage, adultery-proof your life, is not only by focusing on the avoidance of the evil. That's how so many of us think, I I, just got to avoid this, and I got to avoid this, and I got to avoid this, I got to avoid this. But listen, that is how your strategy against adultery is constructed, you know what you will end up with? You will end up with a cold, moralistic heart that is full of pride because you've avoided adultery. Because I've avoided all these bad things. But listen, on the flip side, I want you to know that it's not enough just to avoid the bad. So there are two ways. It's springtime here in Texas, at least it was. It wasn't this last weekend. It was. And what that means, and it comes with this grass beginning to grow in the yard and along with that grass comes all these weeds. Now, uh, once again, I've said this before, it's proof of the fallen world, right? My grass is proof of the world of all the But one, but there's two ways to go about trying to rid your yard of weeds. You right? can walk around your yard every Today you cut grass, you cut grass, you go around, you to pluck all these broadleaf weeds, dig up all the grass. You're going to try to pull all of them one by one, but you know what happens over the course of time is that you pull this one and another pops up over here, doesn't it? And then you pull this one, another pops up over here. And you pull this one, another pops up over here. And so you can walk around trying to pull all the weeds off, You rid of all the bad stuff. But the other way to go about trying to get a weed-free yard is to cultivate a thick, dense turf grass, whether it's St. Augustine or Bermuda, whatever grass you have in your yard, the thicker and the denser it becomes, the less opportunity there are for weed seeds to germinate on the soil. Because the grass is soaking up all the nutrients, it's taking all the sun, it's taking all the water, and it begins to choke out the weed seeds before they even have an opportunity to germinate. Now listen, I want you to know that the way that you create a dense thick turf grass in your life is by beholding the faithfulness and the grace of God and putting it on display in your life day after day after day by turning your attention fixing your eyes on Jesus, who was the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. His work of redemption accomplished for all His people, for all time, who would trust in Him. You've got to look to Him. You've got to be captivated with Him. You've got to open this Word and fill your mind and fill your heart and fill your soul with it. You've got to lean into Christian community and despise secrecy and have other people who can encourage you in the Gospel to say, Jesus is sufficient. You don't need to live in secret. You've got to have people who would say, Jesus is better than all of your lusts. The love of God shown in Jesus is better than all the lusts in your life. And the only way to cultivate that grass is to look at Him and see how faithful God has been to us in the sending of His Son who would live and die in that face. Or you can go around to look at all of it. The longer, more intently you gaze at Him, the, the thicker and denser your love becomes to come Him and that will begin to choke out. Those seeds that are trying to germinate below the surface. My heart for us is that we would be a church that is marked by fidelity and integrity in our sexual lives, both inside and outside. <laughs> with grace. Because that is not our natural response. Father, for those who perhaps have walked that road in the past, I pray that today would be a reminder of just how good Your grace is and how faithful You have been to them. Father, for those who have struggled with sexual sin, Father, I pray today it will be the start of fertilizer on the soil of your lives that would grow a dense love for you that would choke out all the other competing affections, all the other competing allegiances, all the other competing loves, and all the other competing loyalties in them. They would believe that your love is better than their lusts. Perhaps even for those who have yet to be born again, God, that you happen to look on your son with eyes of faith and a heart of trust. Father, I pray that you would protect these marriages. And I pray that you protect those who are single among us as well. Pray you protect our students, our kids. Help us to be wise and discerning. And Father, their lives may not be scarred by the destructive effects, of adultery, lust, and that which inflames it in our culture. Pray in Jesus' name.